everyone and welcome to Globalize Asia. Support for this podcast comes from Royal Beans Chocolates. Royal Beans is based out of Bangalore, India and specializes in Belgian chocolates infused with exciting flavors like masala chai, cappuccino, berry blast, walnut marble and many more. You can gift these special crafted chocolates to your loved ones in India by visiting their website www.royalbeans.in. Use the promotional code GLA10 to get 10% discount off your order. Thank you. Hi everyone and welcome to Globalization. We are delighted to present four episode series dedicated to the history on Indian women. We have collaborated with a passionate historian Ina Chhabra and together have attempted to celebrate women from all walks of life, religion and social status who have helped shape the history of Indian society. Today's podcast is a narration of some of the brave, intelligent and strong women of the Vedic period. So on that note, I pass you on to Watsala Malik and Ina Chhabra for today's podcast. How are you? Good, good. Wow, such a lovely sunny day today. I know, really unusual uh, in London. Very <laughs> unusual, especially after the rains we had yesterday. Oh my God. Yeah, very late spring, sad. But anyway, it's still there. Yeah, we, we're indoors. We're having our tea and enjoying. So, <clears throat> I think it's, it's it, as we were discussing earlier, there is this current emphasis. There's a wave, there's a tide on the topic of feminism and the power and role of women in society today. Yeah, and also in Bollywood, you know. Yeah. Uh, lately, we see a lot of movies coming out with women as a central theme. Mm-hmm. Queen. Queen, yes. Queen. Kangana Ranaut was actually very vocal about this entire topic about how women are pro- portrayed in Indian society of today. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I thought it would be a good idea and uh, to get your thoughts and based on, you know, your historical background and your interests in history to kind of look back and retrace how women have evolved since, you know, we know India in the ancient centuries and India of today. So, um, yeah, it was very strange, you know, when I was teaching history back in India, uh, the textbooks that are being taught in the schools or even later in the, at the graduation level, what we study in history, references to women, whether as saints, rebels, queens, powerful women in the making, they're just very, very sketchy references made in the history books. So I would say that that history was never taught. So there's an urge, I feel, that we should know more about what women were, what position they held of importance. Women holding an important role in the state, women holding important role as, as you know, even a musician or a poet or saints like Mirabai. So they, people need to know. So let's just, why not, let's uh, go back into history and turn the pages and find out more about some stories, interesting stories related to the life. Yeah, I think it would be a great idea. I think in the ancient India, let's say from 1200 to about 600 BC, which is popularly also known as the golden age of the Vedic period, Mm. during this phase of history, women held a position of respect in society from what we know. 
They could attend assemblies, often offer prayers. Women of the upper classes even received education. Yeah. But generally, I think, if you agree with me, society was patriarchal. And the position of women was, in fact, very, very inferior to men. The great models of Indian womanhood was, was Sita. Is, is Sita, I can say, who faithfully accompanied her husband Ram into exile and endured hardships and pain. And you know, Devdat Patnaik in his book on Sita refers to Sita as a single mother. That was prevalent even in the ancient times. She raised her two sons single-handedly. And also, we can't forget the story of Savitri, who then followed her husband, Satyavan, when he was being carried away by Yama, the death god. But so impressed was Yama by Savitri's loyalty that he released her, Lord. Yeah, and uh, women also took part in life of religion. Though, of course, they could not officiate as priests, a few Vedic hymns are ascribed to women's seers and there is also a vast collection of poems ascribed to nuns in Buddhist scriptures. Gargi, Apala, Ghoshal were sages who wrote hymns. So the Bhadranayaka Upanishad mm-hmm. tells the story of a learned lady called Gargi who attended the discussions of the sage Yagna Balkya and mm-hmm. she questioned him a lot. Gargi once argued so fiercely with the sage Yagna Balkya that he lost his temper and threatened to curse her. He replied, Gargi, you must not ask too many questions or your head will drop off. To which Gargi said, just as an experienced archer would get ready to attack his enemy with two piercing arrows, so I assail you with two questions. Answer them if you can. Yeah, and it is said that the topics of her inquiry were so abstruse and esoteric in character that Yagna Valkya declined to discuss them in public. References are in many texts of girls attending lectures of gurus and mastering the Vedas. The most liberated women were the poets and singer of hymns dedicated to worship of Lord Vishnu or Shiva. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, women could um, also uh, do uh, education like they were uh, in the Vedic period. It is said that they could recite and learn by heart the Vedic hymns and then writing was started only when they were initiated into the three hours. So roughly uh, the age of 15-16, they received education and then was the stage of marriage. Well, monogamy was common, but polyandry and polyamy was not unfamiliar. Even marriage outside the family or caste was not allowed. The example of polyandry was the five Pandavas marrying Draupadi, an yeah. example which everybody knows. Really. Yeah, and you know what? There is also a cross-cousin marriage between Arjun and Subhadra. Then widows could remarry generally to the <laughs> husband's brother. Wow. And many educated women, I think, followed teaching as a career out of choice. There's a special word in Sanskrit, the up- upadhyas, meaning the competent lady Yeah, upadhya, upadhya, yes, yeah. right, the competent Thanks. lady uh, teachers. And uh, you know, King Ashok, the great Ashok, sent his daughter Sangamitra on a mission to Sri Lanka to spread the teachings of Buddha and she became a famous teacher of holy scriptures. Atri was another lady student of Vedanta and was studying under the sage Valmiki and Agastya. Probably the concept of co-education was prevalent at that time. Yeah, very strange. You know, co-education? Because she studied along with love and Kush, the sons of Rama. Rama. Uh, In ancient India, there are references that women became warriors. Uh, Vishpala, Mudgalini, Vadrimati. But such women were very rare. And uh, there are also references in the Greek accounts. 
that they were so impressed by the ferocity with which the women of some of the Punjab tribes aided their menfolk when Alexander came to invade India in 326 BC. Anyway, that was the role of the women warriors, a little bit, not very, very significant. There's not much references we find in the ancient texts and scriptures. Now let's go on to the Gupta period, the 4th century roughly period, where the society is divided into rigid caste system. The Vedic period we said was golden, uh, more freedom, more liberal approach towards women, women held in respect, but now we see some rigidity creeping in into the social format, untouchability is prevalent, position of women is deteriorating, social ills like sati are coming in and women are not allowed to receive formal education. Their participation in social political activities were frowned upon and widows were undergoing a very tough time. There were restrictions imposed on them and they were forced to commit sati by burning herself on the funeral pyre of her husband. And the ancient records suggest that the first sati was committed in 510 AD at Erin in Madhya Pradesh. The Shastras or law books advised early marriage for girls. Women were not entitled to property except in the form of stridhan, that is jewellery and other material matters. It's strange how they, they make these rules, Ina, and how dictated them. Yeah. Who dictated them? But today also it's prevalent. Haven't you heard of women entitlement, very less to property and also stridhan? Hmm. Uh, and also dowry, we have the evils of dowry, which is still very much prevalent. Yeah. Even in today's modern period, yeah. uh, whatever family, whether you come from the upper class or the middle class or the lower communities of society, Everybody it's insists, God done with the subtle. Yeah. Um, minute the daughter is born, the first thing that comes to the mind of the parents is, oh, I have to put aside some money for her dowry, for a great grand wedding. Mm. She has to be given away. Kanyadan. The whole coinage of coining of the term Kanyadan also, I personally it's feel it's, it's kind of, yes, yes, it's a degrading uh, term. Why should a girl be given in Dan? Why? So anyway. Going back in time again, uh, there is an epic Tamil poem, um, Shilapadigaram and the Mani Malagai were written perhaps around the 6th century AD. Shilapadigaram or the jeweled anklet is the story of Kovalam and Kanagi. Kovalam, a wealthy merchant who fell in love with the dancer Madhavi who was a lyricist and instrumentalist, admired by the community and wasted all his money on her. Yeah, he said he became penniless. <laughs> and after that, they did go to Madurai, where Kanagi gave Kovalam one of her anklets to sell. Typical, right? <laughs> but the queen of Madurai also has, had lost a similar anklet. So Kovalam was falsely arrested and killed eventually. Kanagi proved his innocence after his death. Her anger was so great that the city of Madurai burnt down eventually. And the king, it is believed, realized the terrible mistake and he also fell dead. So these are stories in the epic tell us about the power and valor of women. And the central figure of the first is the heroine Carnegie, whose heroic violence and reward take the unusual form of a curse on the city of Madurai. In ancient India, there was also a class of women who were not really bound by any rules or restrictions and they only applied to the high caste, high caste wife. wife. Ah, they have the prostitutes called <laughs> Vaishyas and or Ganika. 
and in ancient literature the prostitute is described as beautiful accomplished wealthy enjoying a position of fame and honor she must master the arts music dancing singing composition of poetry fencing with the sword and staff archery etc arthashastra which is the text on state craft written by kautilya suggests that the prostitute must be protected and supervised by the state special watch must be kept in brothels and that the prostitutes should be enlisted in in the secret service yeah and a courtesan of a pleasant disposition beautiful and attractive who has mastered the art has a right to a seat of honor among men she will be honored by the king and praised by the learned and will seek her favor and treat her with consideration let's talk about the beautiful courtesan of vishali called uh, ambapali i believe yeah the she, buddhist legend says that she was very wealthy and intelligent and she was the most treasured possessions one of the most treasured treasured possessions of her city she was the mistress of king bimbisara of magadh after listening to a sermon by buddha she followed him donated a mango grove to his order it was at this hermitage that the great sage rested for few months Buddha's respect for Ambapali is seen in the promise to share a meal with her. Yeah, and it is also referred that she became a Buddhist nun. And one of the most beautiful poems of Pali Canon is attributed to her. She wrote poems in Buddhist scripture called Terigatha. The poem makes an analogy between physical and moral uh, existence. That is everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent in life, including her own. Yeah. and the poem goes something like this my voice was as sweet as a cuckoo's who flies over the woodland thickets now in old age it is broken and stammering not otherwise is the moral of the untruthful verse uh you know what uh, the Bud- buddhism uh, as propounded and uh, preached by buddha it is said that women were allowed in the sangha buddha's foster mother Mahapajapati Gautami was the first woman to be ordained as a bhikkhuni. Many women who entered the sangha became teachers of dhamma and held respectable position as women who had attained liberation. Why Buddhism? Even the Jain tradition it says mentions the name of the king whose daughter was Jayanti of Kushambi who married uh no sorry she remained unmarried. and it is said she received ordination at the hands of vardhavan mahavir after being convinced by him in discussion so women were engaging with you know learned people learned men in discussion on philosophy on life a jataka tale also refers to a story of jain father who along with his four clever daughters went round the country challenging everybody who could come and hold debate and discussion on philosophical matters Yeah so we've discussed Buddhism the role of women they were incorporated in the sangha jain tradition talks about mahavir holding discussion discourse with the intellect so called you know intellectual women of that period uh now let's come down to the temples the center of the main socio economic political religious life of every town and village quite different to the temples of today you know Yeah, yeah, people really yeah because this system is not prevalent anymore. The system I'm talking about is the Devdasis. Mm. It was prevalent all over India. This title was given to women who served the deity in the temple. 
Devdasis were quite professionally trained dancers, composers of devotional music and poems even. They had certain freedom and could distance themselves from social conventions. Yeah, so that's it. That's what religion uh, has given not much of, you know, status or respect to women. Uh, well, now we will come across a different phase that how the powerful, rich, strong monarchs of India at that time, the rulers, how they tried to give high status to the queen in the palace. And one such reference is of Bimbisa, the rule of Magad. Uh, why I'm talking about him is because of matrimonial alliances. You know what matrimonial alliances were? The king married a princess from the neighboring territory so that he could have direct access to that territory because those rulers of those territories will not attack him. him. So he becomes strong and powerful and the lady, the princess he marries brings in dowry, so his a large number of land and money and wealth. And as I said, Bimbisar, he had 500 wives. Yeah. And four of them are actually known. He married Maha Kokushala, the sister of Prasanajit, the powerful king of Koshal, and he got Kashi as dowry. Chalana, a Lichavi princess. Of the Nepal area. Lichavi is the Nepal area, right? Right. Hmm. Kema, a Madra, and a Vasava of Vidya. Yeah. These marriages helped him to expand his empire, which, which obviously was the case. It is said that he gave freedom to his wives to acquire knowledge and often consulted them in matters of administering the state. Yeah, and now uh, Chandragupta, the most important ruler of the Gupta dynasty, the so-called the golden age of Indian history, married the Lichvi princess called Kumara Devi. For the first time, he and his son Samudragupta mention her by her name on their coins and inscription. And the sources clearly say that she was the first Indian queen to be featured on a coin. Oh. Well, this alliance helped Chandragupta not only to expand his empire all over northern India, nearly, but Kumara Devi also brought in dowry of the Magadha and neighboring areas. She became the co-ruler of the Lichavi state along with Chandragupta. Chandragupta too then expanded and strengthened the Gupta empire by entering a marriage alliance with Vakataka kingdom. Yeah, he gave his daughter Prabhavati to the powerful Vakataka king Rudrasena II. And when Rudrasena died, this young Prabhavati became the regent of her infant son and the Vakataka kingdom became virtually a part of the Gupta empire and she carried on the administration with great expertise. Wow, so what, what does that tell us about the Chandraguptas then? That uh, the women they married, and if it was for, for pragmatic reason, for political correctness, they gave them good position and power. Otherwise, this period we are referring to as a period of a little dark age in terms of social status to women in general. They're not allowed to uh, be educated. Sati is being practiced. Uh, marriages uh, are being happening at a tender age, child marriages. But when it comes to the women in the palace, and if she's an, from the important family, then the king feels, yes, I will give her uh, status and position. Yeah. So the queens of the dynasties, Pallavas, Gangas, Cholas, and later, of course, the Chalukyas, helped in the construction of temples and even took active part in the administration. 
Their support and patronage to temple building and art indicates that they were in possession of huge amounts of money um, or even have the, had freedom to finance and construct large temples. Yeah. Viharas. 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 You know, temples, big temples and viharas. Uh, but uh, they had excess, yes, because they're part of the family of the of the royalty but the thing is that they were given the freedom to use the money if they wanted and they were skilled artists and they said it is said that they had very refined aesthetics because the inscription on the walls of the temple tell us that the temples which were endowed by the queen were administered also by lady officials or a special committee appointed by the queen their decision carried weight and their governance was very firm so this is very interesting, isn't it, Vatsala? Of course it is. But uh, don't you think the way they actually got that position of power was a little bit ironical? Yes. It was not because they wanted to assume any position no. of power. It just happened in a way that the kings thought that it was a much more um, pragmatic approach, like you said. Yes, and they're on. coming from big influential families, powerful families. So they have to be pleased, you know, they have to be impressed upon. Yeah. So. Uh, so it is all a matter of politics. Uh, today also uh, politics is in everything, yeah. in every sphere so of life. So at that yeah. time also, the king is all powerful. Maharaja Diraj, he has all the power. So he decides what is suited and you know for the queen. So let's let's look a look at uh, the eastern states. So there were two princesses from Assam, Queen Amrita Prabha and Queen Rajyamati who exercised their influence in religious matters, politics, administration of the royal consorts. The 10th century saw the regency of two famous queens of Kashmir as well, who in spite of much opposition, were determined to make direct, to, to, determined to actually direct the affairs of the state. These were Queens uh, Suganda and Queen Dita. Haven't you heard of them? Well, it's, it's said that they were so much involved in court intrigues and politics of the court faction. And the thing is, Vatsala, that for Kashmir area, the only source of reference that we have, you know, is Kalhan's Raj Tarangani. And Kalhan very aptly says, this Queen Dida was wicked and ruthless. She was the wife of Kema Gupta and Utpala King, ruled Kashmir for some time after the death of her husband. And at the death of her husband, she's, it is said she refused to commit sati. So she was a rebel queen mm -hmm. and opting to rule as a regent for her son. So Kalan referring her to, uh, as wicked and ruthless probably could be also out of, you know, little hatred that why this woman, you know, who's getting the power is refusing uh, to commit sati, which is a required social practice which she should be doing so probably that is why he started uh, you know referring her to be wicked and ruthless because unfortunately this is the only source we have for that period yeah so the definitions of ruthless don't quite apply in a similar way for a king as opposed to a queen which which is an important thought so after having looked and retraced um, the Vedic uh, history along with Chandragupta and some of the other kingdoms of India it's clear that the ancient Indian attitude to women was in, in fact ambivalent. She was a goddess at once, and a slave, and a saint, and even a strumpet. Women idealized in literature and art, but women were in a subordinate position. Yes, they still remain subordinate. That is for true. And so that's the story of ancient India. 
we've covered you know large parts from the guptas the mauryas and to some regional uh, provinces and kingdoms of assam kashmir interesting yeah and this was missing you know in the textbooks so mm-hmm. isn't it nice if we've yeah. researched and done a bit of work on the position of rising power of women in ancient india definitely not i seen it thank great. you watsla great hope you enjoyed listening to this episode you can catch all upcoming episodes on the website globalize-asian.co.uk or via your iOS or Android devices. Also, if you wish to join us as a speaker and share your story, please do drop us a message via the contact form on the website.